Well, we continue now in our study of 1 Samuel 15, the first study we entitled Worship That God Rejects. Worship That God Rejects is a very sobering title in as much that it's very clear that there is a form of religiosity, an alternative form of worship that cannot be grounded in Scripture, that is prevalent within contemporary Christianity and is a form of worship that God rejects. In fact, what we've learned in our study in 1 Samuel 15 is that that kind of worship, that kind of pseudo-worship grounded in a pseudo-obedience to the Word of God is, in fact, akin to witchcraft, divination, false religion, and even idolatry in God's eyes. So this is very sobering, isn't it? It's very um, much time to sit up and pay attention and realize that there is no value, there's no virtue in human religiosity. And what we've learned in this study so far, and this being part three, what we've learned in this study so far is that Saul was iconic. Iconic meaning that he was typical of a propensity to modify the clear word of God in order to fit one's personal agenda. In this case, it was Saul's lust for honor and the greed and the self-will of the people. And then Saul introduced an alternative form of worship to rationalize that modifying of the word of the Lord and then tried to sell Samuel on the fact that he had done everything he was told to do. What we discovered is that God does not uh, accept almost obedient. <laughs> he does not accept mostly obedient. There's only one standard for obedience, and that is obedience, perfect obedience. Now, I've told you before, don't get neurotic with that, because we're not talking about walking in some kind of legalistic perfection or defining obedience in some human standard as a bunch of external piety that we have to, all of that kind of nonsense. So what we will discover when we talk about obedience within the context of the gospel, we are talking about the obedience of faith, that we are obedient to the testimony that God gives about his Son. Very important. That his Son is the exclusive, the final, and the unique revelation of, of his character. That's the point. That's what we obey. We obey the revelation of God, God's self-revelation in Christ. And if we start to mess with that revelation, if we begin to compromise that revelation, if we begin to modify that revelation, we are simply following in the path of Saul. So, and God utterly rejected Saul. He, he would not change his mind. It was a done deal. 
And so having become clear now on the nature of Saul's sin and having become clear as to God's response to it, I want to help you now by putting this all into some larger context. If I've learned anything else about how to study the Bible, it is context. My beloved uh, professors in Bible college way back in the day <laughs> taught me that the first rule of context is that context rules. There's no studying the Bible accurately, legitimately, if you're not giving full scope to the context. And so what we want to look at today is where th this sin of Saul, because it wasn't unique to Saul, tragically. How did this develop? Where were the roots of this? How was it, how was it expressed elsewhere in, in Scripture, both in the under the Old Covenant and even under the New Covenant? How, how has this propensity to modify the word of the Lord, to fit our own agendas. Uh, how, how has that produced other forms of worship that God rejects throughout redemptive history? Now, this will be a very important part of this study for you because we're going to touch down not only how that is happening in the contemporary environment, but what God has prescribed as the cure. So we're not simply isolating and exposing the problem here, which is a very real problem. We are also presenting to you God's prescribed remedy. Not the remedy of some system of theology, not the remedy of men, not some kind of philosophical or sociological remedy, or some kind of psychological remedy. What we'll be presenting in this series is God's singular remedy for this, what Jeremiah called the incurable wound. The incurable wound of rebellion. So, let's look at that now. Um, let's turn, first of all, to the immediate context, uh, or at least within the book of Samuel. And so we see this rebellion on the part of the people of God. Uh, most clearly before Saul in 1 Samuel 8, when the people rejected God as their king. Mind you, this is the post-wilderness generation. They have... Um, lived through Moses, they have lived through Joshua, and this generation now has lived through the judges. They, they've gotten used to doing things in their own eyes, doing what they want, when they want, how they want it. I think that's a, a very important reminder to us that, uh, let me see here, it says the last verse in the book of Judges is this, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, they didn't even acknowledge God as their king. Uh, Israel was a self-willed nation. And so, they want a king in 1 Samuel 8. And that's a, another emphasis. That's our immediate text. Emphasis 
in context for how this sin of Saul has shown up again. They rejected God himself. Not only did they reject his word, they rejected him as their king. You might recall, if you've read that before, uh, but it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, this is 1 Samuel 8, 4, and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel warns them of what it's going to be like to live under a king, and they insisted we wanted a king. So the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And of course, they ended up choosing Saul and anointing him as king. And he as king simply came to personify the rebellion that was at the heart of the people of God. So Israel at this point was God's people by covenant, but not by nature. Very important to understand. Israel at this point in redemptive history was God's people, were God's people by covenant, but not by nature. Their hearts were far from him. And that presents the problem. And so Saul then personified that rebellion. That rebellion that begins by taking on oneself the prerogative to modify, to adulterate, to distort the word of God in order to fit one's own agenda. I, I, and this is, this, I, I'd like to say it ended in the Old Covenant, but it didn't. It's been a pro problem throughout church history, and it's a problem in our contemporary time. Let me give you just a personal illustration here. Um, I attended some years ago a membership class. Uh, after COVID, our little fellowship group had kind of gone into hiding, uh, hoping to not get COVID. And uh, there were a few churches who were gatherings again. And, and so my wife and I went to investigate a local church, a local mega church, in fact, and um, which we weren't really comfortable with, but we thought, well, let's check it out. So we agreed to go to the membership class. And in this membership class, this very popular uh, middle-aged pastor got up and 
From 9 o'clock to 1 o'clock, he walked through all the various steps of what it means to be a member of this church. And he was uh, offering then his points of theology, which I understood, I agreed with. I was even kind of relieved at many points that he was saying the things he was saying about about the doctrine of grace and, and, and the necess- necessity of faith for justification um, and, and, um, and so on. But then the topic came up of giving. How are we to support the church in our giving? And this is where this man's whole demeanor changed. And I'll remind you, let me say it again, up until this point, he was pretty much strong, and he and I could have had lunch and had a fine time of fellowship, I'm sure, uh, in, in our mutual uh, hunger and presentation of the truth to each other. We could have shared uh, a spiritual gifts together and had a lovely fellowship. But now it's time to talk about giving. And what this man did for the next hour was take the word of God and twist it and pervert it and distort it and to modify it in order to accommodate his teaching on the tithe. Now, I'm all forgiving. I think every Christian, in fact, by nature, is a giver. We ought to support those who spend their time laboring in the Word. Uh, there are many reasons to, to give, including, in a paramount way, uh, the giving to those who are in need. And so, I'm all for giving. That's not the point. And if you want to give 10%, you should give 10%. You should decide in your own heart what you should give. That's, that's the New Testament um, ethic. That's the New Testament prescription. You should give according to what you decide in your own heart based upon what you can afford, and then do it regularly. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Eight, chapters 8 and 9 will, will help you with that. But that's not where this young, this young man went. He, he instead started teaching out of Malachi chapter 3. And he ripped that text completely out of his context. And he began to teach that if you give, you will be blessed. Many of you are familiar with that text. And it will, it will, God will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so that you cannot store it. He will rebuke the devourer so that the devil won't have access to your finances. But if you don't give, there's also in the Deutero, uh, Deuteronomic uh, uh, standard a curse. So under the Old Covenant, under the law, there was a blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. <clears throat> and the disobedience under Malachi 3 meant that you would suffer a curse. You would be um, uh, unable to be financially or materially well because you were under a curse for disobeying the law. And then he went on to Matthew 23, 23 to talk about how Jesus commended tithing, which is not what that text says at all. He went to Genesis, of course, and started to teach um, Abraham and Melchizedek, saying that that was a, a prescription for tithing, which is not. It's a description of something that happened once between Abraham and Melchizedek. My point is here, as I sat there and I listened to this man 
do exactly what we have discovered in this study that Saul did. He was almost obedient. He was mostly obedient. What that pastor did that day is he gave us 90% of the truth. And then when it came to having to support his personal agenda, he took liberty to twist and distort and pervert using this using up until that point he had used good sound exegetical principles to support his teaching but when it came time to talk about money he threw those principles out the window and started teaching text proof texting so people would have to give and give under the threat of a curse of the law what that boiled down to beloved is a backdoor denial of the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. It's not, at that point, it's no longer about money. It's Galatians 3, where Paul says that Christ became a curse for us. And so there's no curse that can be leveled against the people of God today. None. Zero. Christ became a curse for us. Because the law says, cursed is everyone who does not keep these commandments. Does not do what they prescribe. And so this man, and and someone questioned him. Asked the question, well, what if we don't tithe? And he got visibly angry. He said these words. If you don't tithe, there will be no church. Quote, end quote. Well, I wrote that man a seven-page letter, respectfully, kindly, refuting what he had said and begging him to reconsider his stance. What I got back was crickets. (laughs) And that's what happens. That's the sin of Saul, beloved. And contemporary evangelicalism is steeped in it. So 90% obedience is not obedience. If you want to be, if you want to be obedient 90% of the time, that's akin in God's eyes to disobedience. If you want to do good, sound exegesis and contextual study of the Bible, unless you have some thing, some agenda that you want to promote, and so you begin proof texting, that's disobedience. I I tremble. I I, I think of that situation almost every day. That's how much impact it had on me. And it makes me tremble. But that is typical. Okay, so that's what happened. Back to our text, back to our study. So the people rejected God as their king. Now, this was a continuance of what had happened in the wilderness generation. There was a problem with the heart of Israel. In Psalm 95, we read this. Come, verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, 
if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. They tested me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I was disgusted with that generation, and said they are a people who err in their hearts, in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest. End quote. Do you get a sense, I hope, of the gravity of this topic that we're studying? This is no feel-good study. I recognize that. This is no how to have the, your best life now. <laughs> this, but this is a critical aspect of um, understanding. If you're going to grow spiritually, if you're going to mature spiritually, if you're going to grow in Christ-likeness and can be continually, progressively free from the pollution of sin. Those are strong words, aren't they? For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. Think of that. God was disgusted with these people he had brought up out of Egypt. Their heart was the problem. They always went astray, other translations say. They always were wandering in their heart. And they do not know my ways. See, again, Israel at this point was... God's people by covenant, but not by nature. Not according to their hearts. Remember Isaiah. This people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So, of course, the wilderness generation, the rebellion of humanity, in this case the rebellion isolated to Israel, began, of course, with Adam. That's, the, of course, the root issue here. And we read that, of course, in Genesis, but it's also referenced in the prophets. Hosea 6, for example, uh, says this, um, verse beginning with verse 6, For I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice. You know what? Let's keep our rule of context, and let's begin with verse 4. <clears throat> what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have cut them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that shines, for I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have violated the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously with me. Now, let me just hasten to say, what Hosea is not referring to is some manufactured, fabricated covenant of works that Adam was supposed to have been able to keep and didn't. There's a system of theology, and covenant theology, they teach that clearly. 
but it's a made-up covenant. There's no covenant of works within the creation story. There's a promise of redemption. There's a promise that God will, through the seed of the woman, bring someone who will crush the head of the serpent. And even though the serpent will bruise his heel, but that's not a covenant. There's no covenant language in that. What um, Hosea is talking about here is that just like Adam disregarded the word of God, modified the word of God for his own purposes. And in this case, it was to hear the voice of his wife, wasn't it? To comply with the voice of his wife rather than the voice of his, of his God, his creator. These and Israel had done the same thing, and by doing so, they had broken the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It was a broken covenant. I hope as you grow in Christ, and I trust that you will get less and less tolerant for people, places, and systems that use the Word of God as a proof text for their presupposed, predetermined systems of theology. I, I, it's one of the most offensive things that happens to me today. When I'm on YouTube or I'm listening to a sermon somewhere or someone's talking with me over lunch or at a conference someplace, and they begin to tell me things that are clearly not biblical, Clearly, they're having to stretch and twist and distort the Word of God. Or they're just parroting some tradition. They're parroting some 17th century reformer. And they're not giving me good, sound exegesis. They're not giving me good study behind it. They're saying, well, this is what so-and-so said. And, you know, so-and-so said this. And this, this famous guy, this famous Puritan said this. Well, was he right? <laughs> Again, back to hearkening back to Bible college, one of my professors used to ask us all the time when we had those kind of statements or we had those kind of questions, he would say, well, let's just ask now, is that really what the Bible teaches? I mean, that was such good instruction. Is that really what the Bible teaches? So what Hosea is saying is not that there is some covenant of works here that Adam broke. He's saying that Adam's rebellion was showing up in Israel, and consequently they broke the Mosaic covenant. So what we're seeing here is from Adam into Israel, and then into now the monarchy with the first king, Saul, is the rebellion of a people that Jeremiah referred to as the incurable wound. The incurable wound of their rebellion. They were chronically rebellious. Jeremiah, in fact, there's a reason why they called him the weeping prophet, isn't there? Because so much of his book is written around the grief and the tears and the pain that he felt for the conduct and the chronic rebellion, the chronic behavior, the chronic rejection and sin and abominations of his people. 
And in Jeremiah 30, verse 12, he says it. He says, For this is what the Lord says, Your broken limb is irreparable, and your wound is incurable. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. This is a bottom, folks. Israel, behavior had hit a bottom. And it would only have grave implications from here on in. No recovery for you. Think of that. Those words should be very sobering to us. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your wrongdoing is great and your sins are numerous. The discipline of the Lord was this incurable wound that acknowledged the rebellion, the chronic heart of rebellion. Verse in Jeremiah 15, 18, 8, 22, 14, 29, 46, 11, there's consistent references to the heart. There's consistent references to this incurable wound. So what we have here is a people who are God's people by covenant, but not by heart, not by nature, and they never will be able to Keep a covenant with God. Period. Now, I don't often quote other writers, <clears throat> but there is some very helpful information in the book called Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen J. Wellam. If you don't, it's a, a thick book, but it is so worth owning. Kingdom Through Covenant, a good study of the biblical theological understanding of the covenants. Okay. So, in this, the writers say this, quote, First, the new covenant is the divinely promised answer to the perennial problem of Israel's heart rebellion against the Lord. The uh, Hebrew expression, the stubbornness of his, their heart, occurs ten times in the Old Testament. The one instance in Deuteronomy is picked up by Jeremiah, who uses the phrase a total of eight times. Thus, nearly all the occurrences are in Jeremiah. This, along with the other phrases <clears throat> used by Jeremiah, such as the incurable wound in chapter 30, which we just read, demonstrates this emphasis on the fact that Israel's rebellion is intractable. She cannot avert the coming anger and wrath of God. Judgment is absolutely certain. The new covenant looks beyond judgment to a future in which God will provide a solution. Listen carefully now. The new covenant looks beyond judgment to a future in which God will provide a solution to the stubbornness of his partner in the Old Covenant. The direction and instruction of God for righteous relationships, there's a promise, 
Do you have a problem forming and maintaining healthy relationships? Well, we're going to offer you a prescription to be able to recover from that and actually do so in this study. The direction and instruction of God for righteous relationships will be internalized and written upon the heart. Since the heart of the people will be transformed, they will be a faithful covenant partner. The new covenant will not be like the Israelite covenant because the people broke that covenant. Now the people of the Lord will be completely faithful and loyal. They will be covenant keepers. Thus the new covenant in Jeremiah must be interpreted against the background of the faithfulness and stubborn heart of Israel in the old covenant. I'll pause there. You get the point. What we see here then in Adam's sin that was continued in the wilderness generation and their rebellion and testing God and then ultimately in their rejection of God as their king and then personified in Saul's um, behavior with Samuel in the word of the Lord. What we see here is this incurable wound of rebellion. And it was never going to be any different. It was never going to change. The people could not keep covenant with God. Now, it would have been just, it would have been understandable for God at this point to simply have destroyed Israel, given up on the redemptive purpose, destroyed the earth, destroyed humanity, and then did whatever he wanted to do after that. But he didn't, did he? God's promise to Abraham still stood. And so God came up graciously with a remedy. And that remedy is promised to us in Jeremiah 31, 31, a sovereign, unilateral act of God in the form of a new covenant. So let's be clear here. The new covenant is the it, God's prescribed remedy for the wayward heart and the chronic rebellion of fallen human nature. Let me say that again so that we are clear. Because this is going, everything we do from here on in in the studies is going to build on that point. The new covenant the promises within the new covenant are God's prescribed remedy for the fallen human heart, the chronically rebellious human heart, which will do nothing but that. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the work of the flesh as being something that is hostile. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It cannot keep God's law, nor it is not able to. It does not, nor is it able to. So this is the serious situation of humanity. But God's prescribed remedy immediately for his people and ultimately for all humanity who come to faith is the new covenant. Now, if you don't agree with me here at this point, it's because you haven't had any teaching on the New Covenant. It's because you're caught up in some theological system 
whether it's dispensationalism or covenant theology or some other form of uh, systematic theology that has rebelliously rejected God's prescription or diminished it, redefined it, modified it, so the new covenant is made null and void effectively. So, therein lies our obedience. Our obedience, not our pseudo-obedience. We can't be obedient to some man-made tradition, some man-made theological system, if it violates the word of God, can we? Listen, we have to get clear about this. You have to get clear about this. I realize I'm preaching now. You have to get clear about this. I have to get clear about this. We cannot be obedient to some theological system when it cannot be supported by Scripture or when it is opposed to Scripture. And I'm telling you that the more popular theological systems that came out of the Reformation are those that stand in the way of Saul. They have modified the Word of God. They have twisted the Word of God to make it fit their traditions, largely because of their requirements to comply with the state church. Do you know that the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, was written at the uh, command of Parliament, a governmental institution? And that when the, when the Westminster Divines were finished with it, it had to be approved by Parliament? And the original draft had no reference to Scripture whatsoever? That it was, it was written so that they could have some means of appealing to a state church population who were Christians by baptism and entrance into the church to control the moral decline of England. This is church history, folks. I'm not making this up. This is simply church history. You can look it up for yourself. What the traditionalists count on is that you won't look it up for yourself. The traditionalists count on the fact that the clergy will always count on the fact that you will not do your own work. They count on you to not be like the the noble Bereans who heard Paul preach and then went back and discovered whether or not they searched the scriptures to see whether these things be so. An action I'm sure Paul would have applauded. But the traditionalists, the clergies, has always counted on you staying ignorant and listening to what they say, not what the Word of God says. And that's why the church in the West has become largely ineffective. Hurting and broken people in the church and outside the church find no solace. There's no balm in Gilead for God's people because they have departed from the word of God in order to support their tradition. I'll talk to you about that in the next episode. So the remedy begins in Jeremiah 31. Between Jeremiah 31, 32, and 33, there's this heart of the remedy. Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, and 33. And before that and after that, there's more of the grief happening. So at the heart of Jeremiah's uh, book 
is the remedy. But we also get very clear by reading Jeremiah thoroughly that there is a serious problem afoot. Therefore, God says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that lovely language? He took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. In other words, it wasn't God's fault. They broke the covenant themselves. They were morally responsible for their actions. It wasn't because God failed them. Declares the Lord, For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it upon their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the covenant language. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. So there's the remedy. And this is echoed by Ezekiel in chapter 36. Where God's holy name is being profaned by Israel's behavior. And so God says in Ezekiel 36.23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. How is he going to do that? How is God going to show himself holy among the nations? He says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all from all your idols. Remember what God said, uh, Saul's behavior and his alternative worship amounted to? Idolatry. And here God's saying, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. <clears throat> Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. There's that covenant language again. So this is the covenant remedy that God has given. And it's a unilateral, sovereign covenant. You notice that there's no mention here that I will do this and then you will do that and all will be well. He's saying, nope, repeatedly, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is something God, if you, if you will, does to his people. 
not something that is um, a mutual contract, not a mutual covenant. The new covenant is a unilateral, sovereign, everlasting covenant that God enacts for the sake of his people and for the sake of his holy name. Now, every system of theology that's not grounded in the biblical covenants is going to somehow diminish, distort, and adulterate this truth. That's a simple fact. The chronic rebellion of Saul keeps showing up. And we'll talk about that more in the next episode. But before we close, I want to give you a very important reference here. How this then plays out, begins to play out in the New Testament. Which, by the way, is a translation issue. It could just as easily have read the New Covenant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we've gotten used to the New Testament and the Old Testament. The word testament should, in fact, be translated covenant, the new covenant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But let me real briefly here show you where this shows up again. And that is, it begins early in the ministry of Jesus, who Isaiah 42, by the way, declares, is himself the new covenant. Now, if you begin to grasp this, if you begin, if, if you're willing, beloved, I beg you, if you have concerns, if you have disagreements, if you've been trained in some system of theology that is contrary to what I'm teaching, please, I beg you, it won't hurt you, it won't harm you, it won't do, be, do anything negative to you, to set your aside and just listen, because I'm not giving you my opinion here. I'm giving you what the text says. And I'm giving it to you within this context, so I'm not proof texting you. And I'm not the only one saying this. This is not some invention of Rick Peterson. I spent my whole life prior to Christ finding out what I can invent. And this ain't one of them. So, you remember, of course, a very familiar conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus, who's probably a, a member of the uh, body of elders, the teachers of Israel, the 70-member Sanhedrin. And he comes to Jesus at night, and he offers his approval of Jesus, saying, so you must be a prophet, because no one could do the things you do unless God is with you. And immediately Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's not what... Nicodemus was expecting to hear. I mean, thank you would be good. We just offered you the approval of the whole Sanhedrin. We acknowledge you as a prophet. And that's what you say to me? That's your response? Nicodemus said to him, How can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb, and the second time he'd be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. I'll pause there. Now, hold tight. Pay attention, please. Very carefully here. We're almost finished. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, is a direct reference, hearkening back to Ezekiel 36, where he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that the cure for Israel chronic behavior is not the law but the new covenant of the spirit a new covenant where you must be born of the spirit you must be born of water and the spirit john 3 what is that john chapter 3 verse 5 is in a direct reference to ezekiel 36 25, 27, a good quality reference Bible will point you back there. So it's not just me saying it. This is so exciting. This is so powerful. Up until now, we've only talked about the worship that God rejects. We've only talked about the sorry disobedience, the pseudo-obedience, the, the false worship of Saul and how that is typical of Israel's history and how that it is typical of the human heart, Jew or Gentile, and how there's no remedy, there's no recovery for you, there's nothing you can do about it. You are you are headed towards judgment and that judgment will be just, it will be decisive, and it will be final. But God, in his mercy, has instituted a new covenant. A new covenant in which the law is now going to be written on our hearts and on the minds of his people. He will give them a new nature. So not only will they be God's covenant people by covenant, but by nature as well. In the covenant language, they will be my I will be their God and they will be my people is fulfilled. And Jesus early in his ministry, as Isaiah forty two points out, let me read that then we'll close, is a walking, talking new covenant. Not only is he the incarnate word of God, he is the incarnate new covenant. The new covenant is not written on stone. The new covenant is not written on parchment. The new covenant is not under glass someplace in some institution. The new covenant is Jesus himself. Isaiah 42, the famous, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bent reed he will not break off. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And dropping down to verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you, referring to the Messiah, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you, hear me now, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison, 
I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they sprout, I proclaim them to you. Some of that language you will recognize is from the New Covenant, from the New Testament. He is a light to the Gentiles. Let me look at that, 42. It says here, that's in uh, Matthew, I believe. He will be a light to the Gentiles, Matthew or Luke. They don't have it in front of me. The point I'm making, though, is that the new covenant, Jesus came to enact and inaugurate not only the kingdom of God, but the new covenant and a new creation. Jesus is the remedy for Israel's chronic rebellion, the incurable wound without whom there is no recovery. There is no recovery without Jesus. For Jesus himself, in his person, in his life, in his obedience, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his priesthood, who, and in the power who gives the Spirit to make everything that he accomplished effectual in our lives, is the walking, talking embodiment of the new covenant fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God intended for Israel. Jesus is the seed of Abraham through whom God will redeem all of humanity. Jew and Gentile in one new man and those who are in him are the fulfillment as well of God's intended purpose for humanity. So the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit is the remedy for the incurable wound. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he referred to he and his associates as ministers of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Ministers of the new covenant. A covenant that uh, is not like the previous covenant. He goes on to elaborate. Let me just read that to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. God has made them sufficient, he said. He and his associates, as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. I'll read that again. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. Who also, meaning God, made us adequate as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The new covenant has been inaugurated. It's at work. In the future kingdom, the future age, new covenant age has begun. Though it is yet to be fully realized, the presence of the Spirit in your life is evidence that the future has begun in the now. And while we are in the now and not yet, we are nonetheless the children of God. We are nonetheless the people of God, not only by covenant, but by nature as well. 
This is why John can cry out in 1 John chapter 3, Look at what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Because he's speaking of us there as children of God by nature. And such we are, he says, emphatically. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. And while it is not yet fully realized what we shall be, we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all those who have this hope fixed on him purify themselves even as he is pure. So in the next episode, we will look further into this very important. Now, if you've been with me so far, don't stop here. Because you'll stop short of gold. You'll stop short of the full picture. And you, if you don't need any more of that in your life. You don't need any more partial Gospels. I want you to get the whole picture. Because now that we understand the source and the cause of Saul's um, uh, rebellion. And the remedy in the new covenant for which Jesus consecrated at the cross with his own blood, by the way. This is why it's so outrageous when systems of theology tend to diminish or set aside or, or somehow um, diminish the, the, new, the power and the glories of the new covenant is because it is a covenant that Jesus suffered and died to consecrate. So in the next episode, we will talk about how the new covenant ministry has continued to be opposed in Jesus' ministry, in the apostolic mission, throughout church history, and how it's being opposed today. And that leaves us with this grave choice. Will we be obedient to the word of God spoken in his Son through the new covenant? Or will we align ourselves with those who, like Saul, modify the word of God for their own agenda and to observe their own traditions. There's your choice. If you're in Christ, you're already standing with, with um, Paul in the new covenant. You're already standing with Christ in the new covenant. But you could be bewitched, we'll discover. You could be waylaid you could be taken aside and come under the influence of bewitching teachers who cause you to depart from the truth and you will suffer as a result. And I want better for you. I want you to feel and experience and know the full benefit, the full glories of the new covenant for which Jesus bled and died into your life. We'll pause there. We've gone far enough. Glad you're with me. Glad you're patient. Please come back for the next episode. We'll talk about the redemptive purpose of God and the new covenant ministry and how it continues to be opposed and how you can discern and avoid that. Amen.